Hello and welcome to Buzz Me In, a podcast by media associates for media associates. My name is Eliza Cohen. And I'm Laurel O'Dell. And we're both media associates at CMS and your podcast hosts. So Buzz is a network for professionals in the media industry, and the goal of this podcast is to speak to some of those professionals to find out what it is they do, how they do it, and how they got to where they are today. We'll also cover some key trends in the media industry by sector. Today's episode focuses on esports with our guest, Sam Cook. Sam is the co-founder and managing director of Esports Insider, the leading and global B2B esports industry news platform, agency, events, and media company. ESI is also a co-owner in joint ventures the Esports Journal and the Work From Home League. Sam is also an advisor to esports-focused venture fund Rewired GG, a mobile competitive gaming service GamerPro. He's spoken at events including the World Gaming Executive Summit, the Asia Licensing Conference, Esports Bar Can, Samsung KX, Asia Esports Forum, and more. Welcome, Sam. Hey, very nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. So I thought we'd kick off by asking you to tell us a little bit more about your career path. So when and how did you develop an interest in esports and how did you come to found esports eSider? Yeah, fair. It's um, a bit of a weird entry into the industry, I guess. So it was actually through, I was previously working in the gambling industry. and That's how I came to um, to end up co-founding ESI and working in the esports space. So it's a uh, taking me back a few years but um after university i did the whole traveling bit and lived <clears throat> lived abroad in in taipei and in hong kong for a while and whilst basically whilst i was on the go um to earn a bit of pocket money basically i was doing online journalism for a site called sbc news which covers um the industry side of betting and gambling so it's as boring as it sounds. So basically, I was writing about when uh, if there was a new Paddy Power CEO or or something like that. That's what I would cover. So truly fascinating stuff. But they, there's obviously a niche audience for that. Um, I suggested to them to start covering esports betting through an industry lens in around maybe 2015 or so. Started to do that for SBC and it it gained some traction. Basically, we started to do some esports betting focused panels at their B2B events um, and they got a bit of attention. And this was back when uh, like Pinnacle was the first bookmaker to start offering esports odds in around 2010, but they were super early. And then the others, like the ones that a lot of people know now, like Betway, Unibet and such came uh, came much later than that. But yeah, off the back of the, I guess, the success or interest in the esports betting content at SBC, um, we came up with a plan to essentially replicate SBC's business model, which is um, the B2B media agency and events for esports more broadly. So out of that, um, Esports Insider was born. Um, we launched it in August 2016. And yeah, it's kind of gone from there, really. So what did you think the challenges were in terms of scaling up your business from uh, sort of traditional betting models to full-on coverage of esports more generally? Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good question. I mean, the first the first year of ESI, we spent just making a name for, for ourselves and for the website, right? We didn't host any events until about maybe 14 months in or something like that. Um, so the first year was just establishing the 
social channels and the website and meeting and speaking to the right people. Um, with the the state of the esports industry, still to some degree, is the same now. Back then, it was even harder. Like back then, there weren't really any PR or comms companies focused on the esports space. Most, if not all, teams and news would be broken through Twitter, for example, or through other socials, or directly through their channels. So, collating all of that information, um, having a news, having a like a solid news flow, was tricky. It's <laughs> just because of the nature, and I guess um, the the lack of development for want of a better word of the wider industry so that was the challenge in in year one and there's yeah there's been plenty since then for sure hindsight's obviously a wonderful thing and you're doing really well but is there anything you would do differently if you could go back in time um yeah maybe i, I don't know it's it's like the the way esports has developed as an industry has been interesting to say the least it's obviously it's a it's a tricky industry because there's only a few <clears throat> it's, it's essentially very much controlled at the top tier by the game developers and the publishers who ultimately make all the decisions because they own the IPs and like without them, the industry doesn't exist. And so any decision they make uh, kind of reverberates around the industry, like, like Sionix's decision for Rocket League to go free to play, for example, that will affect that will affect its player base and like its casual player base and like the the game itself but that will have a knock-on effect for um the esports ecosystem as well so yes esports is a is a, a difficult industry and to assess and to predict like on a lot of panels especially earlier on um in the past well maybe like two years ago or so there was always the question of like esports is this exciting new thing like where's it going to be in five years time or three years time it's like mate no one knows where it's going to be in six months time like no one knows because it's impossible to predict like the riot games for example who own league of legends and operate all at least the tier one league of legends competitions that's a certain way they have a certain way of operating their competitive ecosystem which to me um, seems the most successful, at least for the longer term. Uh, there's different ways of doing that. Then there's like kind of the flip side, which is Valve, who owns CSGO and Dota 2, who are somewhat the opposite, who allow for the third-party tournament operators like ESL, like We Play and Blast and so on, to run the tournaments and the competitive um, sphere of their games, which is also a very good thing. Like I definitely am a believer that <clears throat> you should let the TOs run the tournaments and you as the game dev and publisher should, should focus on the game, right? But if Valve turn around uh, in January next year and like, oh, actually, we're going to run things now, then good luck to a lot of the TOs, right? And there'd be a considerable amount of consolidation there. So in the esports industry, it's tricky because it's growing fast and it's for sure not a bubble and it's a growing industry, but we remain the vast, vast majority of us at the whims of um, the overlords that are the game developers and the publishers, which is fair enough. It's their games. So what have you found have been the challenges to this sort of need to be quick on your feet, needing to adapt to sort of all of the different changing atmospheres that you're saying? And as you're saying, you know, you're at the whims of the TOs and all that kind of stuff. So 
can you just tell us a little bit about how you find it adapting to all that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those like to to work in esports. I guess you maybe have to be a <laughs> a certain type of person. It's it's a it's a difficult and challenging industry, right? Because it's also the fact that in like it, it's it's spread out globally as well. So it's like it's very much twenty four seven, and that makes things challenging as well that like we're based in london and the uk and like we've got Fnatic and we've got excel who are like two of the big teams but a lot of the teams a lot of the main companies in the space are based in the us or um based in china primarily as well with well tencent essentially but the time zone challenges makes it makes it tricky and like the the global nature i guess of esports is what on the one hand makes it super exciting and really cool and kind of special in a way, but on the flip side of that makes it very difficult as well. Like I, I can't imagine um, owning and running a tier one org, for example, where your HQ might be, let's say here in London, but you've got a team in Vietnam and you've got a team in China and you've got a team in the US and so on. And then managing and running all of that is insane <laughs> like the like football was by way of comparison they uh located in a city right and I, that's where because they need to be there that's where all their talent are based um so that makes things operationally speaking a lot easier even though they are global brands esports teams are global brands and at tier one level, at least truly global, because they have to be based in um, in different countries and different regions. So yeah, teams are, I wouldn't want to run a team, <laughs> for sure. And what would you say a typical day in the life of Esports Insider is? It sounds like there might not be a typical day, but if you could. Yeah, it's long. Uh, last, I mean, last year, very different to this. Um, last year, again, like the global nature of the space meant there were events that we somewhat had to be at here, there and everywhere. Right. And that like, we've got freelance team members in the US and uh, Australia and other countries as well. But at the same time, like the the core team is small and the core team is based here in London. So that meant I was on the road a lot last year, like here, there and everywhere at conferences, at some of the main major tournaments as well. Um, so, yeah, very much it varied last year um this year we had planned to host events ourselves in manila in stockholm in um, new york we're going to do our second esi new york event and london as well which is our big one obviously none of that happened so <laughs> next year we'll see but we've had to pivot a lot to digital conferences um and to essentially focusing on new revenue streams and building out new parts of the company and so we're not so heavily reliant on the physical conferences and physical events so yeah it's been a, a normal day in life I, I don't really know it, it changes it changes week to week and month to month and it's very different last year and in previous years than it has been this year for sure but yes uh there's essentially with esi there's four parts there's the events arm there's the website and the media arm in tow and then there's esi connect which we're building out quite a lot at the moment so esi connect is our agency service where we connect the rights holders to uh, to brands suppliers and investors and with esports 
having the spotlight on it a lot more, especially in recent months. A lot of those talks with major brands um, have been accelerated. We also signed a partnership with CSM Sports and Entertainment quite recently. Uh, and so with their existing relationships with big brands from working in sports for years and years, we've had a lot more conversations on on that front as well. I mean, that all sounds incredibly cool and much more interesting than anything Laurel and I get up to on a daily basis. So day in the life sounds great. I think now it's probably a good time to turn to the actual esports industry itself, which he's touched on obviously a little bit. But we're curious what you think are the top three trends in esports today, if you had to pick. The top three trends. Um... Hard to say, I guess, because it, it differs region to region. I mean, like mobile, mobile esports is the one that I think, and I am somewhat in agreement here, that it has the greatest potential to grow and to grow quickly as well. I mean, one of the main and biggest challenges for esports, at least to some degree, it has a few, um, is accessibility. Uh, I mean, to play most of like the major titles are our PC, right? And to have a, a proper PC gaming setup, one, you need the space, two, you need the money. Like it's it's expensive and that's not viable for a, a huge amount of people. Similarly, console, right? Like these things are expensive. And again, you need the you need the space, you need everything. Mobile is a lot easier. Right? <laughs> Obviously still not everyone, but a lot more people have a smartphone capable of playing some of these games, which is why you see different games and different platforms um, having varying levels of popularity in different regions and countries. Like up until recently, which was big news when PUBG Mobile was uh, was banned in India. India was like one of the main, I think it had the highest individual player base for a country for that game and PUBG Mobile, it, not so big here in the UK, but PUBG Mobile globally is huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, I'm pretty sure that will be overturned at some point and it will be like people will be allowed to play in India again, I'm sure. But it was part of like a much wider blanket ban for security reasons. Who knows? Um, but PUBG Mobile, uh, Garena Free Fire, like Mobile Legends, game, games like that, that are mobile competitive titles, the potential of them is huge. Um, with like the onset of 5G as well, like that's only going to increase. Um, so I think mobile, like the mobile space for sure is one trend that's not slowing down. Um, another one that I, that's kind of begun somewhat, but could definitely, uh, there's definitely a lot more that can happen, is the crossover of the education sector with esports as well. So everything from uh, like a school level through to college level and through to university level, I think there's much more that can be done to strengthen the connection between the two and like that's a good thing for the esports industry in terms of talent sourcing and so on um, and also it's a potentially huge area for uh for education to better explore as well like in the uk uh, there's a few universities now either doing their own esports degree programs or including esports focused modules within existing programs there's also now an esports BTEC, which a lot of the colleges have um, have begun to explore. And I think, like, I personally think, like, competitive gaming can be brought into schools in a big way, and like that that can be a good thing. And like, what 
hopefully that will lead to like whether there's after schools clubs or whatever like esports can be a really good thing like it helps a lot of people um in terms of teamwork in terms of building certain and increasing certain skill sets esports is a great thing and it doesn't need to be so demonized and i think like a lot of parents are like oh video games is awful and like esports is awful and that's just i guess a lack of understanding to some degree which is completely understandable as well but i think if government which i guess would be the third one like more government understanding and regulation of the space that in tow with um education that could be a great thing so you mentioned reaching a wider audience there through things like education. How do you think generally industry players can tap into a wider audience beyond their sort of traditional gaming core? So we saw that Ninja played Fortnite with Drake recently and it basically broke Twitch. Do you see more events like this happening? Yeah, for sure. I mean, during the, uh, during the pandemic, I think we, especially like the early um, weeks and months of it in lockdown, we saw... But I think like every Premier League footballer hosted their own FIFA tournament, right? I think it was there was some kind of law there. I don't know. But so many of the sports stars, especially the footballers here, um, and NBA and NFL players over in the States, uh, are increasingly looking to Twitch and looking to build their own individual brands as well, right? Uh, and I think that's only going to continue. And I think those crossovers, yeah, like we've seen with Ninja and others, um, like we see like Deli Ali, like Deli Ali is, um, I think he's still sponsored by HyperX, right? And like HyperX who make the headsets and sponsor a lot of teams and they have the arena in Vegas and HyperX have been a, um, a big supporter of gaming and of esports for a number of years. They also sponsor Deli Ali. Um, I think, is it Marco Royce? They sponsor a few of the footballers as well, basically. And I think there'll be more and more of those crossovers between um, sports and esports, especially with people like Deli Ali, who are like quite openly gamers as well, and like they play video games, like that's okay. Whereas I think in the uh, in the Roy Keane era of football, that certainly wouldn't have been allowed to have uh, to have been discussed in the dressing room, would it? Because you're footballers, you're not uh, you don't play video games. It's a waste of time. But I think with Deli Ali and like this generation, that's changing completely. And I think more and more, like imagine if Twitch was a thing in David Beckham's heyday, right? Like he'd have been all over that. His team would have pushed him very much to the forefront of that and he'd have been huge on it. I think more and more um, these sports stars will look to develop their own personal brands so they're not like just footballers. And I think that video games will be um, will for sure be a big part of that as well. So I think games like, I mean, FIFA is the obvious one, but games like Rocket League have huge potential in terms of esports titles to strengthen relationships and build relationships with football clubs and with footballers because of its close links to what the game is ultimately essentially based on as it could be really cool like barcelona have a rocket league team now and that falls under like they have a obviously their football team but they also have a professional i think handball basketball team uh, teams as well and now they have the the Rocket League team. I think more and more football clubs will, I hope, look to do that as well and strengthen their relationships with um, their own existing younger fan bases, but also widen and broaden their fan bases, depending on which game titles they enter as well. Yeah, so we're seeing a real crossover. Um, and I want to go back to something you're saying about superstar 
sort of players. Mm. Do you see these superstar players and their sort of explosive popularity as in any way shifting the balance of power in the esports industry? And if so, what do you think the consequences of that are? Um, how do you mean, sorry, the in terms of the sports stars or in terms of the esports? More in terms of the esports star, but also, you know, if we have traditional sports players getting in on this industry, how mm. will that affect sort of the balance of power across the board? Yeah, yeah. So I think in esports, like the main, I guess one of the main differences, and like these teams are, are doing their utmost to change this, but I think in at least in a lot of esports, people that are fans of the the game first, of course, and then the player and then the team, right? Whereas in the sports world, at least traditionally, maybe this is shifting a bit in the sports world as well, but in football, it's obvious, well, in sports, it's sport, then team, and then player, right? Like I'm a Cholton Athletic fan, and I was a big fan of Lyle Taylor until he left us uh, <laughs> this year. And now like, I won't swear on your podcast, but now see you later, Lyle Taylor, right? So. In esports, it's a bit different where fans will often tend to um, gravitate and follow the player if they move to another team. Like like Lyle Taylor's now at Knott's Forest. I'm not now a Nottingham Forest fan. If anything, I dislike Knott's Forest a bit now. Whereas in esports, like if a big name player swaps from um, like Fnatic to G2, like the ultimate rivalry or whichever team's whichever team, I think a lot of fans will follow that individual player because they're fans of that player, which is a very interesting trend. And like maybe that does start to happen in um, in football and in other sports as well. Like as what we talked about a bit earlier, these individuals like Debbie Ali start to build their own brand and their own following. Um, and then like you're a Debbie Ali fan, it's like oh cool, like he plays for Spurs now. I'll watch them for a while until he leaves. In esports, whether it will go the other way, maybe it will. It probably will to some degree. Who's to say? But obviously, like, Cholton as a football club has been around for 100-plus years. Fnatic have only had 15 years to build that fan base and that loyalty. And they can fast-track that, and there's various ways to do that, which all the teams are trying to do. Of course they are. But ultimately, that will take time. And, yeah, who's to say which way it goes? So we couldn't get through this podcast without mentioning coronavirus, which is obviously everyone's favourite topic at the moment. Indeed. So ESI not only deals in news, but also has events, media and agency arms. So I guess, mm. as you mentioned, the live events have been particularly hit, but it's quite a diverse business. So how have you managed to weather the storm? Yeah, I was, um, I mean, at the start of the year, yeah, we were supposed, we should have had at least five major events like under our belt that we would have hosted by now with another one upcoming. Um, I was pretty skeptical in in February about the, I guess the true validity of the digital conferences and events. But to be fair, like we like we personally, we spent, we didn't just like dive into it and like, we're going to do a Zoom webinar next week. Like come on everyone, like we're gonna do a Zoom webinar every week that like we avoided that, which obviously was tempting, which understandably some events companies went for that kind of route. But we like spent a fair bit of time um, trying to understand the different options out there and what which were best and which were the best ways of doing it and what to avoid and all of that. Um, so we use a platform called Brella, uh, B-R-E-L-O-A, which was and is really good for the networking side. And like it's 
from what I've seen, it's the best that digital event networking can offer. It's like you select your categories you're interested in, which we preset, and then that matches you with the other attendees. So it's like AI-powered matchmaking and networking, and anyone can message anyone, and then it's just easy to click through and watch um, the sessions as well. So like we learned a lot from our first ESI Digital Summit in May, um, and then we implemented some changes for our ESI Digital Summer in August. And again, like we have a few learnings from that one as well. And so ahead of our Digital Windsor event, which is November 18th, 19th, that we'll have a few changes to, to what we did. So it's been a it's been a learning curve for sure. But I've I've also been definitely like I was wrong and to be so skeptical of how valuable these digital events can be. Of course, it's not the same as meeting someone in real life, but what it does have is like when when we would have hosted our New York event, um, which was originally scheduled to be back in April, I mean that would have been great, right? Everyone loves New York. That would have been fun. Would have had like made a lot of connections and and so on and so forth. At the same time, we wouldn't have had the amount of attendees that we did have at our digital events from Southeast Asia, from Latin America, from Europe as well, because it like the digital the physical events sometimes price people out or um rule people out just because of the logistics of getting there and spending time there and calendars and schedules so the digital events are great and like they're definitely something that even when things are back to normal um we will continue with for sure because you're able to make them obviously a lot more global and the nature of esports means that that's really important so you would think that esports would be really well equipped just naturally to weather the coronavirus storm also you know it's based online things like twitch you can watch your favorite gamers that hasn't changed um popularity of players already had really sort of well-established presences on social media but obviously esports live events were really popular live tournaments that were put on uh what do you see as the impact of not being able to host those live events and those live tournaments in terms of building up the fan base and maintaining popularity? Is there a digital substitute for that level of sort of excitement and involvement that we see at these tournaments? Uh, no, there, there isn't <laughs> for sure. But I mean, esports for sure, yeah, I agree, is better equipped and has been better equipped to deal with to deal with it than a lot of industries, obviously, in comparison to sports, its ability to still host events online only means that it's um, in better stead. But who knows now, right, what's going to happen to, especially to lower league football clubs, as it continues and continues, like the like the the pies on the day, the tickets to the game and the programs, that's a big source of their revenue, right? And like this, let's be clear as well, like it's, the pandemic has hit esports hard. The game developers, again, the ones that have always done very well, the game developers and the publishers and companies like Twitch, who operate fully digitally as such, for them, it's kind of been a, a good thing, economically speaking, right? Because like we've, I think CSGO and Rocket League, the the player, the like concurrent player um, players record was broken. I think maybe twice in CSGO and at least once or twice in Rocket League, like it broke its own record. Um, so clearly like more people playing these games and watching these games is, is a good thing for certain companies in the video game space, but more widely like the likes of DreamHack who um, 
a Swedish company that's been running digital gaming festivals since 1994. I think they were due to get they were due to host sorry 12 of these festivals worldwide this year, uh, maybe more actually. And obviously they've had to pivot completely because like they, for example, like their DreamHack Atlanta, I think they get maybe 30,000 people through the doors over a long weekend. So that's 30,000 people with tickets, spending money on vendors in the space, um, sponsorship and all of that. So they've had to pivot massively and have been hit hard as have ESL, as has Blast. We play all of the tournament operators and event operators in the space. They've been able to continue, yes, but um, ultimately, like they they need the events to happen. In turn, then there's the companies that benefit from those events, such as the the teams, and the teams would host events kind of at and within the events, um, ourselves included, like the international, which is the big Dota two tournament, and it's the um, the competition with the largest prize pool in esports, at least annually and consistently. So I think that this year was the prize pool ultimately was going to be about 20, maybe about 27 million, quite a lot of money. Um, they were going to host that in Stockholm. So it was uh, the first time it's come back to Europe, I think, since its very beginnings. It was going to be in Stockholm and there were going to be events there for a couple of weeks in the build up to the finals. Um, a lot of companies had things planned for all those people and fans that would be in the city all these Dota fans and Esports fans that would be in the city wanting something to do, we were going to host um, three events. I know that other companies were planning to host a lot of events. So yeah, for sure, it's uh, it's hit the space hard, but at the same time, it's at least been able to continue somewhat, whereas sports hasn't. And also, in the absence of sports, obviously more eyes on Esports than ever before. Um, if you look at what what Judy and Tan and his team have done with F1 esports, they've their numbers have been incredible. And I'm sure with certain games, they're they'll be able to retain larger audiences than they probably otherwise would have acquired and would have had. And and longer term, right? Like next year when uh, brands budgets open again in Q1, the assumption is that esports won't be so back of mind now it will be a bit more front and center and there will be both awareness and actual comprehension at a decision maker level uh, for brands and for other companies as well like outside the space but looking in so like longer term the hope at least maybe um false optimism but the hope is that it it could actually end up being like a something that has accelerated the wider industry but yet for this year um, it's definitely been hit hard, but yeah, hopefully we'll get there, right? Yeah, I might be basing this on personal experience with my boyfriend, but I'd say it's definitely mm. brought gaming back into people's lives. The amount of calls I've had when he's in the background, like, he's behind you, he's behind you. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Morphe's been playing games than ever before, right? And there's been such like huge successes in this time as well, like, um, like Fool Guys. I don't know if either of you have tried that, but Fool Guys, which it's not an esport, hopefully one day. But Fall Guys has been hugely popular. I think that broke some kind of PlayStation record for downloads um, among us, like the mobile game. There's been like so many smash hits of games in recent times and also existing game franchises and games that have seen like resurgences and and broken their own records and stuff. Like so I don't know, I've not seen any numbers, but um Tony Hawks, like the remastered Tony Hawks was uh 
came out recently. I've still not played it. I'm, I'm quite excited about that. But yeah, like that game in generally has definitely done well <laughs> out of all of this, that's for sure. I mean, speaking of smash hits, I feel like I'd be negligent if I let you go from this podcast without asking you who your favorite Super Smash Bro characters is. <laughs> I don't play Smash Bros. I don't what? play Smash Bros. Oh, yeah. Uh, What's I mean, yours? Mine is Captain Falcon. <laughs> oh, really? Falcon Punch is just a yeah. classic move. But I'm a, I'm a little disappointed, Sam, I gotta say. <laughs> That's Rahul's big into that, isn't he? Big yeah. He's good at it as well. I think I was at a competition once and he won it. <laughs> <laughs> for, uh, for the listeners, Rahul is another associate at CMS who is very interested in esports and yeah. kindly introduced Sam to us. So have a, a lot to thank Rahul for. Great, I think this is a good place to leave off. So Sam, thank you so much for coming. It's been super interesting, super great. Sounds like some there's some very interesting things going on in the space, uh, coronavirus notwithstanding, and really appreciate you coming on and speaking to us today. And I don't know about you, Laurel, but I think it's time for me to invest in an Xbox because <laughs> it sounds like I have a lot of catching up to do. Uh, so thanks again, Sam. And this has been CMS Presents Buzz Me In. Thanks everyone so much for listening. Mm -hmm.